This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from Newport Beach in sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I've got a new book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? And I write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and the legal blog watch for Law.com. Bob, the world of Biox litigation is always an unpredictable one. Just last month, three-justice panel in Texas reversed the $26.1 million judgment in Carol Ernst versus Merck and Company, the nation's first Biox trial, and rendered judgment that Carol Ernst, whose 59-year-old husband Robert died in 2001, after taking Biox for about nine months, she'd ultimately, instead of taking $26.1 million, she'd take nothing. Attorney Mark Lanier, who represented Ernst, called this reverse of judgment judicial activism for corporate America. And on the same day, an appeals court in New Jersey upheld the uh, damage, actual damages award portion of a $13.9 million judgment in John McDarby versus Merck, but reversed $9 million in punitive damages and attorney's fees, uh, deciding that the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act preempted the New Jersey Product Liability Act. And if those two decisions weren't enough, yesterday in a 5-to-1 ruling by the New Jersey Supreme Court found that Merck and Company is not liable for the medical monitoring of Vioxx users who aren't claiming injury. It means that a class action lawsuit by people who used Vioxx will be dismissed because they aren't claiming that they have an injury. They aren't eligible for the settlement. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we are going to uh, talk about Vioxx once again. We've, we've talked about this a few times in the past in this program. Uh, we're going to talk about these three recent developments, uh, the reasoning behind them, and uh, we're going to get a perspective from a plaintiff's lawyer and uh, a news reporter. Well, our first guest today is attorney Tommy Fibich, a partner in the firm of Fibich, Hampton, and LeBron, LLP out of Houston, Texas. He has the distinction of being the first lawyer to file a Fen-Fen case, and he enjoys being a frequent speaker and lecturer across the nation on many issues. He practices in his practice areas include pharmaceutical drug litigation, and he's been involved in numerous mass tort cases, including psychiatric hospital abuse cases, Fen-Fen, Baycall, and ephedra drug cases. He's settled all of his 250 or so Vioxx suits and says that the 14th court opinion in Ernst is a reflection of Texas conservative courts. Given that ruling, I bet he's glad he settled. Tommy, yeah, welcome I'm, to the uh, show. Well, thank you. And I think that comment is is very acti- accurate. Uh, we have uh, very conservative courts here, and I think the decision is a reflection of the way that our courts have, um, you know, been reaching verdicts. Uh, Bob, would you like to introduce Brenda, our next guest? Yeah, we'll talk more about that in a second. I just want to uh, introduce Brenda Sapino Jeffries, who is joining us also from Texas. She's a reporter with uh, Texas Lawyer newspaper, and also writes for the. Uh, text parte blog, and uh, she's been following the Vioxx cases in Texas closely. Brenda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, well, well, let's pick up on, on that time. We didn't mean to cut you off, but uh, do you want to finish your, your thought there? We can go on to talk about that a little bit more. Well, I think over the uh, last uh, 10 or so years in particular, our courts have uh, in Texas been 
you know, comprised substantially by people that are of the Republican Party, and the Republican Party has been dominated, I think, both on the state scene and nationally by big business, and these kind of decisions have become very commonplace in which judges uh, substitute their opinions for those of the people that testified in trial. And I think that uh, that's what happened in uh, this particular case, the Ernst case. Uh, the, the court found that um, uh, that there was there was insufficient evidence to support the decision. And of all the cases I've read over all the years, I think that that is about as ill-founded as any decision I've ever read. Brenda, what about you? What's your what's your perspective on this? Well, um, a lot of uh, plaintiffs' lawyers probably agree with uh, Tommy's thoughts on that, that the courts are very conservative here. Um, you know, I, I can't make a judgment about the courts, but um, I talked to several after I wrote my story, and they were on the same page as he was and as, as Mark was, Mark Lanier, the lawyer who tried that case. I mean, here's, here's the bottom line to this opinion, is they found that there was insufficient evidence. Yet, when the case was tried, um, Mark Lanier presented uh, Dr. Weiner from UCLA Medical School, a world-renowned authority on arrhythmias. He uh, called Dr. Eagleman, who's an internal medicine and epidemiologist. He called Dr. Lucchese from the University of Michigan School of uh, Medicine, who had done work for Merck on COX-2. And he called the coroner who actually did the uh, the autopsy on Mr. Ernst. All four of those people expressed the opinion that the cause of Mr. Ernst's death was Vioxx. Now, how can these judges, who may know the law well, substitute their opinion for the medical testimony that was introduced in this case? They are substituting their judgment for science, and they are not scientists. Well, as the as the judgment, excuse me, as their appellate opinion said, and I'm quoting, we find no evidence that Ernst suffered a thrombotic cardiovascular event, i.e., a myocardial infraction triggered by a blood clot. Accordingly, uh, appellee uh, failed to show that the ingestion of Vioxx caused her husband's death. That's what it turned on right there, in, according to the opinion. Well, Brenda, what was what was Merck's argument? Merck's argument that there was no reliable scientific evidence that showed that, you know, Mr. Ernst's death was connected to Vioxx. But here's here's the point that I think I'd like to make at this time, because I think that Brenda did read the, the, the salient point of the uh, opinion, and that is that they couldn't find a clot. You know, that is like saying if someone in a criminal case is murdered and shot through the heart with a forty four bullet and dies, that if it goes through the entire body and you can't find the bullet, then you've got to reverse the conviction. And if they had found a clot, they would have said that's not the clot that killed him. That wasn't the kind of clot that would kill him. So the idea that there wasn't a clot, which is typical in most situations, I think is just the courts trying to reach a decision, a preordained decision, that they want to reverse the case. Because to do so, you have to ignore the testimony of Dr. Eagleman, Dr. Weiner, Dr. Lucchese, and the coroner. You can't find that there's insufficient evidence if you believe anything they said, which is what the jury believed. You know, this is a hard-fought case. Merck has lots of money. They have tentacles into all the medical schools to get all the testimony they want. And Merck brought good lawyers down. They had a trial. The jury decided that the plaintiff's experts were more believable than the others, and they found for the plaintiff. And the Court of Appeals said, no, there wasn't sufficient evidence. And that just simply does not make sense. Well, Brenda, I'm presuming that the trial court 
in the trial court, Merck introduced evidence that said that um, there was no injury from uh, Vioxx. Well, I didn't cover every day of the trial, but yeah, that was that was their their thought. I mean, they were saying that there was just no connection. I mean, I I believe that would be the bottom line. They're saying that he took Vioxx, but that didn't cause his death. I mean, that was their case. Was it a kind of junk science ruling, a little bit of Daubert looking at the, the public court saying, we just don't believe what the plaintiff's experts had to say? Um, I don't know, Tommy. I didn't see that site in there at all. Did you? Um, no, and that's that's the, that's exactly no. right. It's not in there. And, and here's the important point that you brought up, Daubert. Daubert was a Supreme Court case in which they said there's junk science. And both the United States Supreme Court and the Texas Supreme Court have said that the judge is a gatekeeper to determine whether the testimony is going to be scientific, reliable, and the methodology by which these experts reach their conclusions is proper. This judge held a Daubert hearing, or a Havner hearing, as we call it in Texas, Havner being our Texas Supreme Court decision on the same issue. That court said Dr. Eagleman, Dr. Weiner, Dr. Lucchese, and Dr. Uh, the the uh, pathologist whose name escapes me are all qualified and their methodology is proper. He also ruled the same with respect to Merck's experts. So we have all these qualified experts that have been determined by the judge capable of giving an opinion in a accordance with the United States dictates coming out of those cases, and let the jury decide it. The jury made an overwhelming decision in favor of the plaintiffs that was taken away by a three-judge panel. What It's what I will call junk law, because the basis of their decision is very similar to those old cases, uh, the, the Daubert case and the Havner case. They said that's junk science. There's no proper methodology. I would say the same thing with respect to these judges. It's junk law. There was no methodology, no reasoning, reasoning, no good analysis for them to reach the decision that they did based on the testimony that was in this four-week trial. Where, where does this trial fit within the context of, of the, the larger uh, perspective of Vioxx litigation? I, I mean, I know that the, a number of these cases have been settled, and, and it, uh, late, later last year, uh, you know, Merck uh, 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 reached a, an agreement on a, on, a, on a widespread settlement of these cases. Uh, is this one of the cases that, that is outside of that, and, and how many other cases uh, continue to be moving forward in the courts? Brenda, do you know the answer to that? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know the answer to that, no. I mean, I, I, a lot of them have settled already, haven't they? I mean... That's well, the, I, I don't have a number on that. I'm sorry. This this was the first, the very first one to go to trial, though. Um, I don't know how many are outstanding. I mean, basically, the settlement encompassed all cases except those that had been tried, and, and uh, the cases that have been tried were excluded from the settlement. Uh, and I think that that points out the confidence that Merck had that our courts were going to reverse this case because it, it it was a significant case. And so they did not try to settle the case, which I think they could have done. They said, no, we're going to let a Texas court decide this case because they know how conservative they are. They know how pro-business they are. And while these courts have enjoyed a long period of electability and respect they are not scientists, and they're substituting their judgment for the opinions of people that know more about the subject than they do, and that was wrong. So, so the 2007 settlement didn't have an opt-in or an opt-out? It, it covered all the cases that had not been tried up to that point? Right. All cases other than those that they excluded 
that had been tried were uh, subject to being settled. Well, Tommy, there's one famous court in Texas that uh, is not so conservative, and a lot of plaintiffs try to bring their cases there. I think it's a federal court. Why, why wasn't this case brought there? Well, I think, well, first of all, I'm not sure that our federal courts offer us a lot more consolation, uh, number one. Number two, if it had been filed in federal court, then it would have gone to the MDL in uh, New Orleans and gotten into a black hole down there. I think that uh, um, the MDLs typically do not lend themselves to early resolution. Um, and so I think in, in this particular case, Mark Lanier filed this case before Merck, before uh, the drug was taken off the market, and he felt like it would be more quickly resolved in the state court system. And I don't, uh, and obviously that didn't turn out that well. I will tell you that as of today, if Mark Lanier had his choice of where he wished he'd filed this, I'm sure he wished he'd filed it in federal court because I think the federal courts would have given it a fair review. Well, I, I've done stories before that um, many of the um, successful plaintiff's lawyers in Texas don't like MDLs, federal MDLs, and they would prefer to try their cases in state court. Um, you know, not in all cases, but that seems to be the feeling among many of them. I've written a couple stories along those lines before. Is is the decision of the Court of Appeals here limited uh, to the facts, or does it set a precedent for other cases of this kind? Well, they're mostly settled. Well, I, and I don't mean Vioxx cases necessarily only, but oh, pharmaceutical okay. cases in general. I mean, is, is, there, is, there, uh, uh, is there precedent in this ruling that could uh, either be good news or bad news uh, for other cases of this kind as they come through the courts? I don't think so. I mean, and that's the, I guess, what is somewhat unusual about the, this particular case is that uh, it had great notoriety. There were a lot of issues that were raised on appeal besides this issue of uh, sufficient evidence on causation. There were a mm -hmm. lot of issues raised, and this court wrote a very, very short opinion. They didn't go into analysis on anything uh, other than this one point. A substantial part of the opinion is a recitation of the facts uh, giving rise to this particular uh, litigation, and it has no precedental value whatsoever. What they just said is in this particular case, the plaintiff did not meet its burden of showing sufficient evidence to sustain the verdict. And my recollection is there's very, very few cases cited in this opinion. Uh, mm -hmm. So, no, I think it is just, you know, uh, Miss Ernst, your husband died. We're sorry, but uh, you get nothing. And I don't think it stands for anything other than that. Tommy, is this going to change your perspective on how you bring and present uh, evidence in pharmaceutical cases? Uh, probably not. I mean, first of all, as plaintiff lawyers, we put our own money into cases, and that is a very uh, strong motivation for us to take good cases. Number two, they're very expensive to bring. So before we take a case, and, and Mark Lanier is a fine lawyer, uh, but before people like Mark Lanier take cases, they evaluate their cases, and they evaluate what the chances are of the evidence being sustained on appeal, and we have known for a long time that Texas was very pro-business in our appellate reviews. So I don't think it's going to change anything. It might make me more pessimistic, might make me a little uh, uh, stronger in my evaluation of what 
cases I bring, and it may encourage me to go to federal court, as you suggested. It may encourage me to stay out of Texas because I don't think Texas citizens can get the kind of justice that they deserve here. If you look at this decision and the decision out of New Jersey, the New Jersey plaintiff made a recovery. They said there is causation there. And I would submit to you that the evidence in the Ernst case, which got reversed, was stronger than the case in New Jersey, which got affirmed. So uh, I think that answers your question. I don't want to be in Texas if I can avoid it, because I don't think Texas citizens get fair review in our appellate courts, and hopefully that's going to change. But, Tommy, if in this case, as you pointed out, both sides had experts that were, you know, approved by the judge, like this is this person's testimony is an expert opinion. What else can you do when then to have all those experts and then the appellate court says, it, you know, we're not listening to those expert opinions. I mean, and Brenda, that's exactly right, right Brenda. I mean, you, you know, there, there isn't anything more you can do. You know, there's an old trial lawyer adage that says there's three cases you try. It's the case you think you're going to try, the case you try, and the case you wish you tried. I promise you that the case Mark Lanier tried is the same case that he wished he had tried. He did everything that he could do. He had good experts, and going back, there's nothing more that he can do. So, you know, Brenda may be right. It may be one of these circumstances where you just don't take these cases anymore. Well, we had invited Mark to be on the program, and uh, he's been on our program before, but he's out of the country this week and couldn't do it. But, Brenda, I know that you talked to Mark, or or I understand you talked to Mark after after, in the wake of this. Uh, what, What did he have to say to you about this case? Well, um, as I reported in a story I wrote after the verdict, and I think as you as you quoted directly in the intro, I mean, he was saying it's judicial activism for corporate America. I mean, he's, um, I mean, that pretty much sums up what he said. His client is upset, um, has lost her faith in the judicial process. Um, he doesn't feel that the the court was. Um, I, I, was um, thoughtful enough. You know, he compared the length of the Texas opinion, which I believe was 10 pages, to this very long um, opinion issued on the same day by the New Jersey court. He um, didn't think that they were thoughtful enough on the opinion. So what are his next steps? Well, he says he'll appeal. Do you think that a different verdict would have come down if the damages award was not so high? Well, I mean, the judgment was 26.1, but the, the verdict was $234.4 million. And, you know, due to um, caps on punitive damages and actual damages, that's, that's all it was. So um, I don't know. There, uh, another one, um, as I pointed out in the story that I wrote, there was another case that was reversed a couple weeks ago in Texas, and that one was about um, $32 million. Um, one in the uh, Rio Grande Valley was also um, was also reversed. So, um, you know, it's not just that one particular case. Now, did you have the opportunity to talk to any of the lawyers from Merck or any of the Merck personnel? Um, yeah, in my story, I, I talked to um, one of the lawyers who helped try the case, um, who basically said they were pleased with the opinion, and um, as I mentioned before, he felt that there was, quote, no reliable scientific evidence that showed Mr. Ernst died due to any role that Vioxx played. Well, Merck early on adopted a strategy that they were not going to settle any single case, that they were going to try every case 
Uh, obviously, they changed that, Tommy. You settled some of your cases, but do you think that that strategy, uh, just being completely hard-nosed about everything, was to benefit of Merck? Well, I think it worked out well for him in this particular litigation, but I think that that is risky litigation. That's a risky uh, tactic to employ. If you go back and you look at the FinFin litigation, they did basically the same thing. They tried, tried like five cases, and uh, they lost them all, and that resulted in setting a value for FinFin cases that was much higher than Merck was able to do in this particular litigation, and that ended up costing... Uh, uh, American Home Products, which changed its name to Wyeth, approximately $19 billion. So, you know, there's risk in all of these cases. There's risk that the plaintiff will lose, and that militates towards settlement. There's risk that the defendant will lose, and that militates towards settlement. Merck chose to take that risk, and I think that in this particular instance, it worked out well for them. But other pharmaceutical companies that think they want to adopt that as a strategy because it worked one time, may find themselves with a company in bankruptcy because the American public, when they hear these type of cases, do not like what they're hearing. And that's what resulted in such a big verdict in the two cases that uh, we had here in Texas. We're going to take a short break. We'll return in just a moment to talk more about Vioxx litigation uh, and what's happening in the future. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at MayItPleaseTheCourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We're welcoming back our guest, Attorney Tommy Fibich, a partner in the firm of Fibich, Hampton, and LeBron out of Houston, Texas, and Brenda Sapino Jeffries, a reporter from Texas, lawyer. Uh, What's... What's coming down the pike uh, uh, after Vioxx? What other pharmaceutical cases are 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 on the horizon? That are uh, are there others that are going to uh, take on the sort of the magnitude of the Vioxx litigation? Well, I, I think there are, and I think that it is more of a uh, a response to the FDA being overworked. Um, and drugs being fast-tracked, and there's so many drugs out there, 
and the marketing that the drug companies do, that there are uh, an incredible number of drug litigations, you know, that are currently uh, um, going on. There is a uh, drug called Ketek that has been basically taken off the market that was an antibiotic that uh, causes liver failure. There is um, a dye used in MRIs called gadolinium that causes a horrible disease. If your kidneys are impaired when you go in for an MRI, and it seems like a substantial portion of the world has had MRIs, there uh, is a drug that was taken off called Digitech that I know lawyers are you know looking at very strongly. Um, and then there's antipsychotic medications uh, called uh, Seroquel and Zyprexa that uh, are being promoted for uses they weren't intended in causing diabetes. So lawyers that do this kind of work uh, have a real target-rich environment. And so I, I see a lot of drug litigation uh, coming on. And, of course, there's this issue of uh, the Supreme Court trying to decide whether the federal all these cases are preempted by the FDA's determination as to their safety and as to the warnings that are appropriate for them. Well, so you mentioned the cases, uh, the cases that lawyers wish they'd tried, or, or, or rather the way they wish they'd tried them. What what are you seeing? Uh, what lessons are is the plaintiff's bar taking out of the, the Vioxx litigation that will be bringing to these cases coming down the pipe? Well, I think the, the exactly what what we've been talking about is that uh you know these cases are about causation 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 um and 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 that is that a lot of the problems with bad drugs is they cause death and there's other things that bring on death there's a lot of causes of strokes there's a lot of causes of heart attacks and so I think the lesson to be learned uh, in these opinions is that before lawyers rush in and, uh, and and start spending the immense amount of money it takes to get these cases to trial, you better make sure that not only do you have good experts, but that the testimony that you're going to elicit is going to be sufficient to withstand appeal because uh, – that's just what happened in this case. We had two substantial verdicts in Texas and two different courts of appeals decided for two different reasons, I might add, that these cases should not stand up. Well, Brenda, we by the tally that the Legal Talk Network is keeping here, we see three victories, all with relatively small awards in about 20 cases so far that have reached juries. Do you think that uh, plaintiffs are ultimately on the losing streak here? Well, yeah, I think that's that's clear. They are right now. Um, the other day after this um, this opinion came out, Merck said that of the 18 plaintiffs whose cases went to trial against Merck, only three have outstanding product liability judgments against the company. That's a t- that's a tough road, Tommy. Do you think that there's um, you think it's time to switch professions? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, I think that these cases were hard cases. Uh, I'm speaking of Vioxx. I mean, Vioxx was marketed to an older population, to people that were over 50 years old. And when people get over 50 years old, they have risk for heart attacks by virtue of being over 50. Over 50 is a risk for a heart attack. Being a male is a risk for a heart attack. Those, by the way, were the only two risk factors 
that Mr. Ernst had. He had no. He he did not leave a sedentary life. He was not a smoker. All that sort of stuff. So I think what happened in this case, in in this particular litigation, rather, was that the uh, defendants could argue that a lot of things causes heart attacks, and it was impossible to determine the 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 part that Vioxx played. And that feeds into what we all know: people that are overweight have heart attacks. People that have high cholesterol have heart attacks. People that are sedentary have heart attacks. And a jury was unable in a lot of these cases to determine whether or not or the part Vioxx played in the heart attack. And so that got them uh, uh, being more persuasive on on the uh, liability than the plaintiffs were. I don't see that in other litigations. However, if you want to take a lesson from this litigation, that's the lesson to take. It the the best cases are a signature in, injury caused by a drug, and but that's very rare. And it's not likely that these cases were all a slam dunk for Vioxx, or 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 Merck wouldn't have considered settlement, would it have? I mean, would the cost of litigation alone been enough to to get it to uh, enter into the settlement, or or is it at least likely that that part of the reason it entered into the settlement was that it. It was no more sure than the plaintiff's bar as to what was going to happen down the pike here. Well, I think that's right. I mean, although they were winning a uh, significant portion of the cases, the settlement actually occurred before these uh, appellate decisions came down. If the decisions had gone the other way, then I think that would have been more encouragement to lawyers to try cases. And Merck was going to lose some of these cases. And uh, so I think they just made a, a business decision that it was less expensive for them to get out of them and settle them than it was to continue to try them, knowing that they were going to win a certain amount and lose a certain amount. Well, it's we've reached the uh, near the end of our program where it's time to uh, wrap up and get your final thoughts so and your contact information so our listeners can find you. So, Brenda, let's let you go first and uh, give us your final thoughts and, and tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you. Well, um, certainly the Vioxx litigation is something I'll be continuing to cover over the next few months. Um, sounds like Mark Lanier is going to appeal this, so we will be reporting on what happens with this particular case and the others. Um, I'm uh, at uh, our website, of course, is www.law.com slash TX, and um, that's where the content for Texas lawyers online as well as our blog. Great. And Tommy? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, Brenda's been writing for the Texas lawyers for a long time, and whenever I get my my copy, I always read her first because she does such a great job, and it is a great reporter of uh, of the legal news here. Um, Thank and, you. Appreciate uh, again, that. my you know final thoughts on this is that uh, I don't think people recognize the judicial activism that is being undertaken by judges that uh, oftentimes use these appellate benches as stepping stones to other positions and want to curry favor with the party that elected them. And I think that's wrong uh, for both parties, quite frankly. Uh, We have elected judges, and unfortunately I have seen a trend in the last 10 years where their decision seems to mirror the positions of their of their uh, supporters, and I think that's bad, and our system of, of dealing with judges needs to change. But um, I'm still in the game. Uh, I still enjoy this litigation, and I can be reached at Fibich Hampton and LeBron, and that's FibichHampton.com, Tommy Fibich, F-I-B-I-C-H, and uh, my number is 713-751-0025. And you're in Houston. 
and I'm in Houston, Texas. But our practice on drug litigation is really all over the country. I'm in Houston as well. Great. Well, Bob, that about does it for Lawyer to Lawyer this week. You can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. And uh, let me offer us very special thanks to both of our guests for taking the time to be with us today and share their thoughts on this topic. And a reminder to our listeners that you can find all of our programs also on the iTunes uh, network in the podcast library. We'll be back next week and look forward to talking to you then, Craig. Great. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, Tommy. And we'll be back again next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.